Well, this is the last week of the series, Find Your Voice. Next week, we start a brand new sermon series, which is entitled, Something That I Will Tell You Tonight. I will not let you know what the next sermon series is unless you come to the all-church rally tonight. Privileged information. If you come to the all-church rally tonight and you learn what the next series is, I will swear you to secrecy so you are not allowed to tell anybody who doesn't come to the all-church rally tonight. So be there or miss out. This series has truly shaped me, helped me to grow as we uh, learn to talk about topics that our world is talking about. Uh, our church has a long way to go in finding our voice on all these issues. So today, the topic is racism and violence, part two. All of these sermons are available on our app or on our website, um, and I would suggest that you listen to all of them if you missed any of them, because there's so much information that will help you find your voice. At the beginning of this series, I said, humbly, we're admitting that we can do a better job, a much, 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 much better job of learning to talk about these issues with grace and with truth. Uh, when it comes to racism and violence, we have a long way to go. Last week, my challenge simply was this. I challenge you and us as a church, I challenge you to make a relentless, risky, everyday effort to reach across racial barriers with the love of Christ. I'm going to read that again, and I hope you're writing it down. Challenging you to make a relentless, risky, everyday effort to reach across racial barriers with the love of Christ. That's the topic, that's the challenge, that's the introduction. Nothing more needs to be said. Let's pray and then we'll get into it together. Father, we do ask that you would give us tremendous wisdom, tremendous love and compassion as we strive to improve an area in our society and in our churches and in our hearts that seems to be irreparable. Father, we have such a long way to go in rebuilding relationships that have been destroyed by sin, but I believe that in Christ all things are possible. Pray, O oh Lord, that you would begin in our hearts. Show us as a church how we can grow in this area. Humbly we open our ears and ask for you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by just as I did with the LGBT issue, give, give us a flyover of the development of this issue in our culture so we know where we've been generally and so we know where we're at today generally. We don't, certainly don't have enough time to go into all that has happened, but let me just share with you the story of one group, the African Americans, as they tracked their uh, pursuit of liberty and freedom and equality through the American story. As we've all learned in history classes, the starting point was tragic and sad and sinful. African Americans were brought in to this country from the very beginning, brought as property, told they were less than human. It was believed they didn't even have souls. That was the beginning point. In the early provincial period, which is the early 1700s, the country and the church, you have to understand, agreed that slavery was good and benefited society. It's what everyone believed, in the church and out of the church. From 1730 to 1770, there was the first great awakening. Preachers brought the gospel to slaves, yet still those preachers supported slavery. 
Spiritual liberty, yes. Social liberty, no. No one wanted that. No one was seeking that. That was the starting point. From 1770 to 1830, when our country was founded, northern states abolished slavery. Several founders agreed that slavery was morally wrong, but they left the problem for later generations to solve. Many of them, uh, including Thomas Jefferson, warned that God's wrath would come on this new country because of this very issue. But they didn't fix it. From 1830 to 1865, Christian abolitionist societies emerged. They were much more vocal and direct and demanded much more. They divided the church and the country. Most who fought for slavery, please understand this, most who fought, uh, fought against slavery still believed the races were different and should be separated. Their problem was with slavery, not necessarily racism. The South grew more defensive and so did the church. They dug in their heels. There was a conflict of interest. Just looking at the Methodist denomination, which split over the issue, there were 1,200 clergy and they were slave owners. So there was a conflict of interest on the matter. We all know what happened 1865 to 1917. What 100 years of work on abolition couldn't do, war had to accomplish with a huge price tag of human life. But war did it. Four million former slaves were now freed overnight without anything. The country didn't know what to do. Abraham Lincoln was drawing up a plan to send all of the African Americans back to Africa. When they discovered that that was too costly, then they let go of that plan. They didn't know how this was going to play out. There was a very short period of reconstruction, and then the South instituted the Jim Crow laws, which greatly obstructed black people from equal opportunity. Most white people at that point simply stopped knowing and stopped caring about the black community. Then from 1917 to 1950, there was a renewed concern. Why? Well, many Southern blacks began moving north, and the uh, Northerners, while they had their theories and their feelings about uh, racial divides, once there was competition for their jobs and their neighborhoods and their skills, their racism became apparent. And in the North, there was persecution, uh, there was fear, and black people were driven into ghettos as whites protected jobs and neighborhoods. The KKK resurged in the South, which forced government to get involved again. They were still aiming for the solution to be separate social lives. And so the government created a more civilized form of racism. Rather than house bombing and lynching, there was now lender discrimination, zoning restrictions, restrictive covenants, at all cost trying to keep the races uneven and apart. That was what was happening. Then from the 1950s to the 60s, the civil rights movement emerged. We have some pictures from that. They aimed to end Jim Crow dis discrimination. It was led by Christians from within black churches. Most white Christians stayed out of it for fear that it would distract from the Christian agenda. In 1954, the landmark decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, ended segregation legally. Yet, hopes in the church were low for the movement to truly change anything. When asked about Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech, Billy Graham said this, only when Christ comes again will little white children of Alabama walk hand in hand with little black children. No one believed that it would truly work. The church had low hopes. In 1964, Congress signed the Civil Rights Act, which changed the laws 
but laws don't change hearts. It wasn't until the 70s that the evangelical church began considering a theology of reconciliation, both in the black and the white church. It wasn't until the 80s and the 90s that leaders began to get together and gain ground. The Southern Baptists didn't apologize for slavery until 1995. Then the Promise Keepers Conventions and other movements issued a bold call to brotherhood. By 1997, the Wall Street Journal said, evangelicals are the most energetic element of society addressing racial divisions. That is a flyover, a very quick summary of where we've been. The first thing I want you to write down is this. We have to see the problem and we have to see the potential. We have to see the problem. If your assumption is it's done, it's over, the laws are changed, I see a lot of people of different races in my life today, what's the big deal? Uh, let me just confront your ignorance. It is far, 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 far from over. Please don't consider this a settled issue in your heart. It's still a huge problem. But see the potential. It's not only a problem, it is a potential. Yes, yes, from the early 1700s on, over 200 years is a long time for a giant glaring moral problem to persist. And yet, by the measure of history, the problem of slavery was solved in the United States rapidly. And we have an opportunity to do something that many societies before us didn't have the opportunity to do. There is a problem and there is a potential. It's still a problem. If you watched the Oscars last year, uh, you know what happened. Uh, race relations dominated the headlines and leading up to the Oscars last year, the hashtag that was most popular was, uh, what was it? Was Oscars so white? Oscars so white. Uh, Chris Rock uh, was hosting the Oscars and there were many who pressured him to back out, back out, protest, protest. Well, he didn't. And he got up and he gave his monologue at the beginning of the Academy Awards. He said this, what kind of racist is Hollywood? It's not burning cross racist, it's different. He said, it's sorority racist. It's like, we like you, Rhonda, but you're not a Kappa. So racism is on, in the headlines, and there's talk about it everywhere. It's still a problem. We have to see the problem. Well, where do we see it? Well, the racial divides in this country show up, jot this down, in history. They show up in history. If you know history, plain as day, you see the problem. We talked about the African-American story, but what about the Latino story? Um, when it comes to their story, sometimes they get just lumped into the civil rights movements and their individual voice and their background isn't heard. Complicating matters is uh, often to people who are not members of the Latino community, all of them are lumped into one box, Mexicans, right? And there's no regard given for if you're from Central America or South America or Cuba or Puerto Rico. There's just this one box and everybody's talked about as if you're in that one box, which is a disgrace and insulting. The Latino American story also displays the racial divide. America has always been hot and cold in its relationship with Mexican immigrants. For example, in the 1930s, the government blamed Mexicans for the Great Depression. We've got a picture here. 500,000 Mexican Americans were forced out of the country in the Great Depression, and it didn't matter if they were citizens or not. They were blamed for the Great Depression, and to make room for American workers, they were simply forced out. Then when World War II came about, there was a labor shortage in the United States because all of the American men were fighting in the war. Where did they turn for labor? Suddenly they're drawing up contracts to bring in more Mexican labor to the United States. Hot and cold, hot and cold. Very self-serving on the part of our country. 
By 1968, the discrimination was so apparent, especially in the East L.A. school system. Get this, by 1968, half of all uh, high schoolers in the um, Hispanic community in L.A. dropped out, half, 50% dropout rate. One in a thousand finished college, which prompted the community to rally together and to say, we are not being given the same education as everyone else but the Board of Education would not hear it. Their demands were simple, more bilingual educators and uh, equal access to the same classes as every other student. Uh, when they did, were not given a voice, 10,000 students walked out of the school system. We have pictures of that. 10,000 students demanding an equal education, schools that teach them and give them a fair opportunity, walked out day one and then day two. And then day three, it took two weeks for the school board to finally come to the table and say, let's talk. 10,000 walking out for two weeks to fight for equality. You see the divides showing up in this country in history. It also shows up in geography. You can write that down. The racial divides in this country show up in geography. While the laws may say that segregation is illegal, laws don't change hearts. And so segregation is still a reality. Check out a, a picture of Chicago. Uh, this is a map. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing project that happened here. They put a dot on the map for every human being, a dot for every human being. You could zoom all the way into neighborhoods on this map. Um, so you have the blue dots are the, uh, each individual blue dot is a white person. The green dots are black people. Red dots are Asian people. And you have the orange dots are Hispanic people. What you see in Chicago is there is still separation. We're not living together. The whites are one place, the blacks are another place, the Hispanics are another place, not because the laws say so, but because that's the way society is arranged. Check out our own capital, Washington, D.C. You don't see integration. You do see segregation. So this is the way the world is arranged. It shows up in geography. We are still divided. It shows up in the economy. You can write that down. It shows up in the economy. All right, pop quiz. I used to be a teacher. I'm really good at this. Pop quiz. I want you to write down three numbers. Number, and you are not allowed to use your smartphone. If I see anyone with a smartphone out, the ushers will escort you out of the building. No cheating. Uh, pop quiz. First number I want you to write down is your guess for the median net worth of white households in the United States. Right now, median net worth of white households in the United States. Net worth is all of your assets minus all of your debts. Whatever's left over after you add up all of your assets, home value, car value, stock value, minus all of your debts equals how much wealth you have. So write that number down. Net worth. Then I want you to write down the net worth in your guess of a typical uh, Hispanic household, and then the net worth of a typical African-American household. Write down those three numbers, median net worth. Yeah, those three numbers? Yeah, no cheating. I see people's heads turning side to side. I will tear up your paper. All right, let's see who hit the nail on the head and got the bullseye. Here it is. Uh, <clears throat> Median net worth of the average white household, $141,900. Median net worth 
of the average Hispanic household, $13,700, African-American household, $11,000. Who got it right? Yeah. Wow. It is staggering to see the difference. I floated those numbers past people all week long. Very interesting to see people's reaction because nobody got it right. So they were so off, so there was this immediate jarring response, sometimes followed by some defensiveness, as if they had something to justify or answer for. Makes you wonder when the Bible says if someone has two cloaks, he should share with someone who has none. If the Bible would say if someone had 17 times the number of cloaks as another person. It shows up in geography, it shows up in the economy, it shows up in the church. You can write that down. It shows up in the church. LifeWay in 2015 did a survey. They found out 8 in 10 congregations are made up of one predominant racial group. 8 in 10. One predominant racial group. You would think people would see that as a problem, but when surveyed, 53% of churchgoers disagree with the statement, my church needs to become more ethnically diverse. Over half of the people disagree that their church needs to become more ethnically diverse, while only eight, while eight in ten churches are made up of one predominant racial group. So you see the racial divides, and listen, it begins when you see the problem. Are you seeing the problem? I hope you're seeing the problem. I hope you see there is a problem. If you're okay with everything that I just shared with you, I think there is a bigger problem because you're unwilling to see the problem. Number two, write this down. Since we are one in Christ, we must embrace unity. We have to begin with our spiritual beliefs. Our foundation for unity will not come from laws or social policies or a history of hurts. Our, our policy for unity will come from God's word. Check out the book of Ephesians chapter 4. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we'll find a description of the church that's revolutionary. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Since we are one in Christ, we must embrace unity. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, it says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This image here is the whole church, meaning the church of every person, of every nation, tribe, and tongue throughout all of history is referred to as a body, meaning there's unity. Christ is referred to as the head. The body is supposed to realize that the body doesn't make itself a body. It is already a body. We're not establishing unity in the church. It's already there. We are embracing it and we are multiplying it and enjoying it because it's a spiritual reality. And the way that the church builds itself up in love is when it understands it's a body and not a series of amputated body parts. And each part is working to make the body grow up in love. The fact that Christ is the head shows his authority and it also shows that he's the one who holds everything together. He is the source of the unity of the body. In Colossians 3.11, it says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, 
barbarian, city, and slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now and forever, Christ is made up of all races. You don't check your race at the door of heaven because we're told we will have people from every nation, tribe, and tongue there. The beauty of heaven is not the elimination of race. It's the accumulation of every race under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thought. Christ is all races, meaning he's made up of all races, and it says he is in all, meaning he is in all races. He doesn't just welcome people of every nation, tribe, and tongue into his family. He does more. He leaves the safe confines of heaven, and he walks himself into every race. The fact that Jesus welcomes you into the foreign land of heaven, the fact that Jesus welcomes himself into the foreign land of your rebel heart shows that there is no basis for racism in the gospel. Uh, the Great Commission is the opposite of racism, and racism is the opposite of the Great Commission. You cannot do both at the same time. Jot this down. Racism takes apart what Jesus has put together. Jesus has already created spiritual union in his church, and we have to embrace it. Ask yourself, are you? Are you working to embrace racial and ethnic diversity in your kitchen, in your church, at your job, in your world? Are you reaching across racial barriers? Are you content to let the separation persist? If you check into the local stats of schools, you'll see there is tremendous um, lack of racial diversity in the local school system. Yet I'm encouraged that we partner with an organization called ISP. They reach into high schools with the gospel and they are getting teenagers from all over the city together to share their faith. They're doing a lot better than grown-ups are doing. Check out this picture. A couple Fridays ago, they were in our church. They had a prayer meeting in our church. Kids, high school kids from 30, uh, 35 high school kids from 13 schools, 13 different schools, urban, suburban, all over, met here. 40 college students from different colleges also to pray for revival to break out in their community. It's a beautiful thing. I love that they're getting after it. I long to see that spirit, that heart among every generation. So number one, see the problem, see the potential. Number two, since we are one in Christ, we must embrace unity because racism takes apart what Jesus has already put together. Number three, write this down. We must follow the example of the early church. Follow the example of the early church. You can check out the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 28. What you see in the early church is disturbing. Uh, all of the early apostles were racists because they lived in a country that was filled with racism. If you were to grab a DeLorean and go back in time, so excited to see what Jesus was doing in the land. Uh, and you were like, I'm going to go check out the temple. You would walk like three steps into the temple area on top of the temple mount. You would be met with a sign in your language that said, Gentiles, not pass this mark on pain of death. Uh, the Jews were making a clear statement to every person who's not a Jew. You are not welcome in God's holy presence. You cross this line, you die today. They were insanely racist. They wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. It was illegal. Jesus had to change that. In Acts 10, 28, 
Peter met with Gentiles and said this. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is the rock of the early church. And he has to give a little explanation, right? You all know that what I'm doing here is unlawful and I can get a lot of trouble. But God's changed my heart. Amen. If you look at chapter 11, verse 17, Peter had to answer for his actions. When he got back home, people were like, what do you do with those people? Chapter 11, verse 17, their response was this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is beautiful. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Wow. Wake up call. The gospel would have been taken to Jerusalem and Judea and period if God hadn't intervened. You would have never heard it. God had to change racist hearts, and he did. Jot this down. They reached across racial barriers. We must follow the example of the early church. They reached across racial barriers, despite the laws. Check out Galatians chapter 2. You can see the struggle. Peter, who was one of the first to cross over the racial barrier, still was trying to do the dance of when am I embracing my racist heart to my advantage and when am I letting go of that? And so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul reports on an incident they had. It says in Galatians 2.11, Paul says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was a public altercation. Peter and Paul, fingers pointed. Why? Because of racism. They had to battle it. It's a barrier to the gospel. And we're going to have to battle it too. Let me just say this. In the church, when it comes to your understanding of the racial problem, uh, your sense of any racial superiority or inferiority is a lie. And only the love of Christ has the power to rip that lie from your heart. It lurks in the shadows of every human heart. A feeling of superiority or inferiority. And it's a lie. As I talk to people this week about racism and their own background with racism, everyone usually has a roadmap of thought that they've followed. It's like a speech that they've given themselves and others for perhaps decades. And while I'm interested in the journey people take me on, I'm really interested in the destination they arrive at. And I've listened to people who've told me the journey is, well, here's my background, here's my parents, here's my my grandparents, and here's my household. And, And then they eventually get to the point where they either say something like, And I know we've got a long way to go, or they say something like, but you know, when it comes to them, and they make some final statement, and based on that final statement, I can assess if a person believes that the problem is located in another race, or if the problem is located in every race. And when they're done with their sentimental journey, if they're 
equal sign leads to, but you know the problem is in that race. They've got a problem. They've got a problem with racism in their heart. They might not see it. If your conclusion is at the end of all of your reasoning, but you know they, and your conclusion is that the problem exists inside a different race of people, you've got a problem, a big one, because you're a racist, and so am I. If you don't admit it, you'll never get anywhere. Neither will we. We have to admit that the problem exists in every race equally. There are some people who would refuse to admit what I just said. The problem exists in every race equally. And the problem exists in every individual in every race equally. That's the truth. The foundation of spiritual unity is found in Scripture, and more than that, it's found in Christ himself, in the nature of God himself, because he has united us forever. The fourth thing is this. What can I do? See the problem, see the potential. Since we're already one in Christ, embrace the unity. Follow the example of the early church. Number four, well, what can I do? Like, where do I get started? How can I make a difference? What can I do? I want to give you three things that are good starting points. First one is this. I want to challenge you to avoid closing your ears and taking only one side. Avoid closing your ears, meaning you're not listening, and taking only one side, which means you're not budging. Not listening and you're not budging. Too much of that going on in our world. Uh, let's focus on the current problem between the black community and the law enforcement community. There's this pendulum shifting between counter-protests right now. You've got the Black Lives Matter movement. We've got some pictures from that. There are people who are leaping in front of the camera to show you that injustice is happening and this can't be anymore and things need to change. And it's protest after protest, right? And then in counter-protest, you have the law enforcement community rising up and having parades and having movements and having rallies. And um, people are taking sides. And the, the division is becoming more apparent. The canyon between the two groups is becoming harder to bridge. People are closing their ears and taking one side. Uh, you have athletes like Colin Kaepernick who is doing what he can to raise awareness for one side, taking a stand and gets on the front of Time magazine for it. People are taking sides. Let me just challenge you to avoid closing your ears and taking one side. Um, wherever you fall on this issue primarily, there are credible complaints on both sides. There are credible complaints on both sides. If you stop listening and say, the problem is over there, if they would get their act together, if the law enforcement community would just get their act together, the problem would go away. No, there are credible complaints in the law enforcement community. You say, well, if the black community would just get their act together, then the problem would go away. No, there are credible complaints in the African-American community. Our goal is not to see one side win. Our goal is to see love and justice prevail on both sides. Amen? Love and justice to prevail on both sides. That's the goal. And as you find your voice on these issues, let me just get practical. I really recommend that we as a church avoid super inflammatory Facebook comments. Hard to watch Christians who say cold, harsh things about human beings who died. Heartless. 
Well, that's what you get when you break the law. Well, that's not what you got when you broke God's law. We are to be a people of justice and mercy. Where is your mercy? If you turn that off, if you turn off the love, what does 1 Corinthians 13 say you have left? Nothing. You are nothing. Understand that you have people on both sides of this issue in our own church, in your own small group, on your ministry team. I spoke with a police officer recently about his fears of safety while on patrol and how things have changed. And nobody's as safe as they once was because everyone's afraid that they're going to get thrown in front of the cameras for doing their job. I spoke with an African-American mother about her fears of her children being profiled. Hey, be wise. Be loving. And let me just suggest that you avoid closing your ears and taking one side. Next, what can I do? What can I do? Well, don't let your hurt justify racial retaliation. Don't let your hurt justify racial retaliation. Um, pain doesn't make hatred right. It doesn't. Pain doesn't make hatred right. And my prayer as a pastor is for people in this church to understand that any racism found inside the heart of a Hispanic person is completely unjustified. That any racism found in the heart of a white person is completely unjustified. That any racism found in the heart of a black person is completely unjustified. God will never understand your racism. It's unjustified. You're hurt, completely justified. And yet, the conclusion, what that makes you, can be not justified. Hey, listen, you can be wise, and you can be, you can seek legal resolution to injustice, and at the same time, you can keep your heart pure of all racial hatred that's possible. Maybe you're a landlord who's been taken advantage of. Maybe you're a person who's been overlooked for a promotion. Maybe it's because of race. Listen, hey, love your enemies or become your enemies. If you conclude the problem is located in one race, your heart will never get better. The problem is located in all races, and we can't let our hurt justify racial retaliation. Next, choose your words with great care. Great care. Avoid stirring up rivalry that's already boiling over. Avoid trying to simplify an issue that is way more complicated than your bias. We ignore parts of a problem because they don't fit into our stereotypes. Then we say polarizing and extreme things. White people just don't see it. Black people all work the system. Muslims all support terrorists. Yeah, that's a fine way for you to feel good about your discrimination and your bias. That's simply not fair and it's simply not true. Lumping everyone together in one box might make you feel like you've got a handle on the problem. 
but it's insulting to the gospel. It's insulting to the gospel. Choose your words with great care. Hey, our country has failed to solve the discrimination problem. When you look throughout history, the church has failed to solve the problem. But listen, despite our failures, God has somehow given us a golden opportunity to do something heavenly together. Our nation was founded on principles that were better than the people who sat at the table and wrote them out. The story in our country is divine. The principles that were placed in our Constitution led to the world that we see today. And we have an amazing opportunity to show the world what equality and unity and reconciliation really looks like. They can't figure it out. And aren't you, as you reflect on it, aren't you ashamed of what has happened in your heart and words that have come out of your mouth? Aren't you ashamed of how you have contributed to this problem? Because I certainly am. Don't you feel convicted when that part of your judgment is going to happen in the future? Let's talk about racism. You think that's going to be a pleasant conversation before a holy God? Aren't you weary of holding on to bitterness and anger? You feel ready to do something that will change the world for our children? Or do you just want to see one more generation that failed to love those who are different from them? I want better than that. Let me talk just about our church. In our church, I just want to be clear. Uh, we here at Harvest have a zero tolerance for racism. Zero tolerance. Uh, if you hear a racial comment directed towards Muslims or African Americans or Mexicans or Latinos or whites or whoever, uh, you cannot be silent. Do you know you can sin with your ears? Do you know that? You want to know what that looks like? Here's what that looks like. See, I'm listening to something I shouldn't be listening to, and I'm saying nothing in response to it. That's called sin. You can sin with your ears. And we have a zero-tolerance policy for racism in our church. Whether you take the person aside kindly or decide to talk to them publicly, you've got to call it racism, and you have to tell them it's not allowed here. Let them deal with the discomfort. It's probably been a long time since they've had to. And remember, racial joking is racism. Racial joking is racism. Our small group leaders in particular, you need to be all over this. Because so often, people don't see their own racism. They don't see it. They don't see how a passing comment might sound like they're being gracious and understanding and informed, and you're looking at other people in the room thinking, they don't see it. You need to help them see it. We have a zero-tolerance policy for racism. If there's someone who can't get on board with that, uh, let a pastor or an elder know. We will give that person same-day service, and they will remember that conversation for a very long time. If you're hoping for a lot less diversity around here, it's time to find another church. You understand that? Because that's not the direction we're going. 
Let me close by reading what the Lord Jesus himself said in John 17, 20 to 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How beautiful is that? May they all be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. In other words, may the unity of the church reflect the unity of the Trinity. May we be that united so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Hey, we've got a long way to go. A long way to go. And I think we have to work together to find out where our church is going and how we can find our voice on this. This is the beginning, not the end, of our conversation with this topic. And I think we do need to pray because we need God to lead us and grow us. So let's do that right now.